Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about nostalgia. And I guess I, I want to start by thinking about the genealogy of the word nostalgia. Because it comes from the smashing together in Greek of nostos, which is homecoming, and algos, which is pain. And it actually started as a medical diagnosis, believe it or not, that was considered close to paranoia by physicians in the 1600s. And um, it was described as an affliction where the patient was manic with longing and was similar to melancholy, except that it was attached to a specific object or place. So it was a kind of obsession about a historical moment in time or a place or attached to an object from a person's intimate history, which I think is really interesting in thinking about nostalgia as a as like a diagnosis, you know, because so many of these terms that we talk about on Lean Back have a genealogy that is in some ways, you know, psychologized, like this way of thinking about the psyche in producing particular kinds of historical emotions. I know that in one of the earlier seasons we talked about longing. So maybe Laura, you can talk a little bit about what you see as the similarities or relationship between nostalgia and longing as a way of thinking through, you know, the history of that term and how it works. So I feel like when we talked about longing, we talked about like um, a lack of complacency or a disaffectedness with your current state or the present. And I think nostalgia. Um, is really similar in that way. Like, it's a longing for the... It's a type of longing. Mm -hmm. It's a longing for the past. It's a kind of weird way of grappling with your current set of circumstances because I think, I think if we're talking about nostalgia, we have to address memory and how memory works because I feel like nostalgia is kind of... It reveals how memory has gaps and how it prioritizes certain feelings. And memory is an emotion-based <laughs> mental process. So nostalgia reveals that memory prioritizes like fond memories and positive associations mm -hmm. and things that made you feel good and block out the things that feel bad. And so it's not necessarily an accurate representation of the past. And um, it's kind of unusual to have a longing for, for that, you know, for a past that's not necessarily accurate, rather than longing for a future, and we've discussed futurity on this podcast before mm -hmm. too, rather than longing for a future that you can like help build. But if you're dissatisfied in your current, current state, then mm -hmm. it becomes difficult to, to imagine ways in which you can long for a future and it's much easier to long for memories that mm -hmm. are not necessarily <laughs> accurate but that make you feel 
warm fuzzies. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's clearly a politics to nostalgia that is really important because even while there's this interpersonal dimension that is about the cultivation, I think, of mostly um, happy feelings, I think that that nostalgia is also a technology of nationalism and of capital that helps discipline bodies to remember in particular ways. So interestingly enough, nostalgia as an idea didn't even come to the United States until the Civil War, which is interesting because we're in a moment of <clears throat> like this resurgent nostalgia for the lost cause and for the Confederacy. And living in the South and watching the conversations about, you know, Confederate monuments and statues and thinking about, you know, the invocation of the new south as a way of reorienting contemporary political feelings it's interesting to me that the moment when that word enters the u.s lexicon is right at the moment of mass racial strife right that is splitting the country apart not necessarily because of concern over slavery as an institution obviously that's a part of it but mostly over the rapid economic development of the North. Thinking about nostalgia as a technology of capital and of nationalism, I think nostalgia is a very white feeling. It's very European, it's very white, and in the U.S. context I think it's entirely wrapped inside, as a political feeling, wrapped inside of Civil War language about the relationship between white people and slaves or former slaves. I mean, I think you're right that nostalgia is largely white, and it's not just about idealizing that era, the South, um, in the antebellum period. There's, like, a continuous nostalgia for popular culture that's white. Like, think about all the reboots that are happening <laughs> right now. I mean, it's the X-Files. It's... Oh, yeah. Full House. 80s it's and 90s. Roseanne. Yeah. It's Will and Grace. The West Wing. You're right, mm -hmm, right. Yeah. Jumanji. It's Baywatch. I'm like, you know, where are the reboots of Family Matters and Sister, Sister? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, were, there was, a, like, a real vibrant black culture in... American television in the 90s and a lot of their uh, accompanying programs that aired alongside are like enjoying reboots and the black the black centric programming is not being rebooted or remembered no, or yeah. nostalgized in the same way it's super white in that way I mean and also uh, the period pieces that we're seeing um, Stranger Things I mean not an entirely white cast but an upper middle class for the most part I program. Mean, it's uh, not Mad Men. I think that the sitcoms are not surprising because it's sort of like masturbatory Reaganism, right? So you have this moment of contracting where we have, you know, this uh, backlash cycle that's hyper white and hyper masculine. And so that's the Reagan era 100%. Its nostalgia is keyed to the erasure of civil rights, to the erasure of feminism, to the erasure of um, Latinx struggles and La Raza and Cesar Chavez and the workers and the student movement and the anti-war movement. So 
all of those, you know, sort of proto-fascist impulses of the law and order era that started in 64 and that began to peak in 68 through the end of 88, all of those impulses are the impulses of white nostalgia. And so it's not surprising at all to me. In fact, it's the reason why I teach a Reagan seminar, <laughs> you know, is because it's like you cannot understand this moment unless you understand Top Gun, unless you understand, like, this yearning for a hyper-masculine, hyper-white public sphere that has been erased of any traces of non-normative bodies or thoughts, right, that are blackened or browned or queered or femmed or whatever. And so, you know, it's interesting to me to see how nostalgia in this moment as a racial and, and capitalist technology is fundamentally underwriting this grotesque fantasy that we're being forced to watch as like hyper-masculine white culture is in its death rattle because I see the way that white men talked about Trump during the election, not that the major news networks reported anything from the red states, but nonetheless. And it's not just a longing for, you know, this antebellum life, but in some ways, I think that the, the class analysis on white men, especially in this culture, is so lazy and incomplete. I think what's happening there is that white men who are talking about economic anxieties are really talking about a nostalgia for a pre-Fordist America, right? Where their entire lives were not oriented towards, you know, 40-hour work weeks or 60-hour work weeks or, you know, this kind of hyper-mechanized, late capital, you know, democratic life. There's space for them to not want to be cogs in the machine. It's a bummer that they don't have the language to talk about that, and it's a bummer that the only thing that they can talk about are the racist dog whistles that they've been programmed to respond through as a way of discussing their frustration with being, you know, these capitalist machines. But I fundamentally think that some of the nostalgia about the lost cause, I mean, a lot of that's key to slavery in the South, but in the Midwest, where I'm from, it's not slavery stuff so much as it is a really um, inarticulate feeling about modes of capital. And there, that seems to be a space that we can use to make that nostalgia a more productive space, right? To reframe the past as having you know some things that are worth keeping it just shouldn't be slavery it shouldn't be racial hierarchies it shouldn't be the subordination of women it shouldn't be the erasure of queers it shouldn't be anti-agitation anti-social movement but you're right that pop culture is a space i mean i'm thinking about kanye west just freaked out on tmz yesterday you know and said that with 400 years of slavery you know certainly it had to have been a choice and that seems to be, you know, what you're kind of talking about, this hype, you know, this moment where the nostalgia bubbles up into these weird, you know, um, moments about race and capital. To me, it's weird because it shouldn't just be about those things that you mentioned, but it also shouldn't be about what dr drove capitalism either. Because, I mean, I think a lot of people look towards the past because there was, like, heightened pr productivity. I mean... United States became a major player economically and politically. Um, at, I mean, one thing about nostalgia is that it, it's kind of like vague. You know, you can't like identify oh, yeah. a certain thing. 
So, I mean, there there's like a nostalgia and, and it's being mobilized politically now where like regulations are being dropped. Um, regulations that we actually need to function yeah. <laughs> if we're like thinking futuristically, but we're not. Like we're operating in a nostalgic way politically right now. There are a lot of things happening socially like white nationalism is having a resurgence or what we've called historically Nazism. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. There are a lot of social movements that um, are extremely for equality and uh, social uh, human rights and social rights. And, but I also feel like politically and economically, we're not, we're, we're also nostalgic in a way where we're trying to drive economic growth, but in a way that's not realistic if we're thinking about future generations. Oh yeah, 100%. So, <laughs> like we're dropping regulations on <laughs> environmental concerns. You know, we're making national parks uh, like game for fracking. Right, yeah. exactly. But I, it's not like people have a nostalgia for the years before the EPA when, you know, you couldn't even see through the air in New York City or in L.A. I mean, Rich people do. No, rich people want the money. So they, they want the tech. Their, their longing is not for the actual thing, right? They, that's just greed. That's not a nostalgia. Yeah, but they don't care about the, the side effects. Oh, I agree. So no, no disagreement. Mm -hmm. But it ties to this notion of longing about how we think about the future. And who's thinking about the future? And what and what is the relationship between nostalgia and futurity, right? Because, I mean, in the futurity episodes, we were talking about the future and anticipating futures and imagining futures. One of the conclusions that we both agreed on was that we do a shitty job as a culture at thinking about new futures. We're not good at imagining, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. New things. And part of that is because the hold of nostalgia, for precisely the reasons that you pinpoint through pop culture, is so strong. It is, it's bought and sold. It is, it's, a, it's like trafficked, right? It's, an, it's narcotizing. It's a, something that puts the culture to sleep so that it becomes really shitty at thinking of new, innovative ways to approach problem solving. And it, it, you're right in one sense that I think nostalgia is something that drives policymaking, like as a morass where good ideas go to die. You know? That's a real thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the lack of, like, consideration about how your decisions will affect the future um, <laughs> is pretty troubling to me. And how we, like, use the past... Like when the pa the past generates good outcomes, we use it to continue to generate good outcomes. But when the past uh, gives us hard lessons, we kind of ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, <laughs> because of that addiction know. to the positive feelings, yeah. right? Because the because the way that Americans, in particular, are oriented towards the past, it ha the past has to be like a safe space, mm -hmm. right? It has to generate positive feeling, like to the exclusion of everything else. Right. We can't have this conversation without talking about make America great again. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, totally. <laughs> well, which is Reagan's slogan. Right. Right? That's his uh, first yeah, campaign, I mean, the, campaign slogan. His Reagan slogan was premised on nostalgia, and 
Donald Trump slogan is premised on yeah. nostalgia about nostalgia. But so. the, st- the nostalgia is about a hyper white masculine political sphere, right? Where wealth generation and wealth hoarding and smash and grab capitalism is completely de jure and de facto economic policy. And the whims of white men just just become prima facie obligations for the entire culture. It's like white man fiat, right? White men dream it on the Twitter machine and then it becomes everybody's lived reality. It's that kind of translation. And the reason why I think that the policy translations are happening that way is not just because, you know, Trump has some like manufactured psychosis that liberals want to believe that he has, but because nostalgia fundamentally works that way as a process of memory and wish fulfillment. The fact that he is producing a presidency entirely based in nostalgia means that there's this rapid transference between past to present that is where all of this like policy stuff is happening. I mean, it's completely maddening. When you're basing policy, though, on nostalgia, <coughs> though, you have to recognize that we talked about memory earlier. These are false histories oh, that yeah, yeah. created. I mean, yeah. if it's just a white history, that's not an accurate history, and it's not an accurate representation of our current population or the, our previous population. Yeah. So it's an entirely false history that's he that he's mobilizing to create policy right now. And it, <coughs> I mean, I mean, Reagan did the same thing. <laughs> Reagan basically came out and said, "Look." Yeah, the war in Vietnam, we would have won it if we had only tossed more money into it. But these, you know, liberal, wussy presidents refused to, you know, put up the money so that we could win, which is ridiculous, obviously. And then and then he would sit in the White House viewing room and watch movies from the 30s and then just use those plot lines and actual movie lines to make, you know, public statements about what America should be like and look like that demonized students and the youth, that demonized people of color, which is why he began his campaign in Neshoba County where the three civil rights workers were lynched during Mississippi Freedom Summer. I mean, obviously he let all the queers die of AIDS, right? For four and a half years before there was any, you know, rumbling from the White House. So, I I mean... mean, They demonized opposition. Yeah. both Both of these presidents operate in a way that, like indicates that they want unchallenged domination. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's a technology of whiteness. Whiteness is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. The interesting thing, though, about what you're saying is about the representation of demographics in the United States, which I think also speaks to nostalgia as a keyword that um, is in close in proximity to the notion of home or homeland and to national belonging. Because, um, especially because that word enters the lexicon at the Civil War when we're having this huge, huge, huge national debate about belonging and national rights and suffrage, right, for a bunch of different populations in the United States, not just slaves or former slaves, but also women and indigenous people. You know, there is this sense that nostalgia is about orienting, in, in my mind, the white self towards the nation as its 
as property, right, as a sovereign place that white people own, not just in material culture, right, like in owning the property and owning the homes and owning the land and owning the oil wells and having the fishing licenses and owning the land that way, but also owning America as a national imaginary, right? So that's the stuff that's happening in the debates about, let's say, sports um, mascots, that is all white imaginary ownership, nationalism, home belonging stuff, right? I think that the DACA debate is entirely about a nostalgia for an exclusionary nationalism where white people didn't have to encounter Spanish-speaking Americans, right, in public. It's this nostalgia, as you said, for a counter-history. One more thing that I think about that is that, you know, there, there's this debate raging over state education curriculums, where in a state like Texas, the, the Republicans in the ledge rewrote the textbooks for, the, for a history curriculum in K-12 to exclude references to slavery entirely, right? And to exclude references to the transatlantic slave trade, saying that slaves were here as an indentured servants or as workers implying a different relationship to agency than they actually have, which brings us back to Kanye, right? Saying that slavery was a choice, you Again, know? I mean, I have to come back to this, that history has, I mean, been washed that way. I mean, like, tons of things have been erased from history. Mm -hmm. Our occupation of the United States. Oh, yeah, like, sure. <laughs> sure. From Native American and, like, tribal peoples. Yeah. I mean... Good luck finding that in a history textbook. And there's, like, so many more things about how we came to be as a people that are just, like, completely erased. Yeah, the Chinese Exclusion Act, Japanese exactly. concentration camps, and internment mm -hmm. camps in the United States, you know, all of those things. But I think that the nostalgia of the contemporary moment feels desperate, you know, in a way that perhaps in other moments it felt more naturalized because America was whiter in terms of the people who are participating in political life with formal political rights. And I think that one of the reasons why there's so much political anxiety now is because the manufacturing of the nostalgia doesn't feel right. It feels crass. It feels um, like it chafes. It feels hostile and violent. Not that nostalgia isn't that way always as a political thing. I think it always has that violence as a vector. But in this contemporary moment, I think perhaps one of the things that is maybe heartening is that I think people are recognizing that the production of this kind of nostalgia for like the simpler, happier time in American culture, like especially nostalgia for post-war productive culture, Fordist culture, uh, as the Cold War began, is somehow off. I think people see that it is not right. And by people, I mean, I mean, especially white people, right, who have partaken in nostalgia as a political act in prior political moments, are in some ways coming to terms with their complicity in some ways with that nostalgia, and are starting to feel deeply uncomfortable with it as an orientation of American life and belonging. I I don't know. I mean, I guess I most of my experience of like nostalgia is a pretty hyper capitalist. People are using nostalgia as entertainment or a distraction from the present. So I mean, there's been a revival of like 80s music and 
these reboots and fashion from the 90s. And yeah, but don't you think that that's just the fact that, that white capitalist culture is parasitical and is not generative at all. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons why I don't see we don't see reboots of black sitcoms is because they're so unique and they're so interesting and inventive and creative that they can't be rebooted, right? Right. I mean, that's a very interesting way of thinking about the circulation of cultural modes. You know, and the other part of, is is obviously the stuff that I write about, about black trauma and black pain. That is not a nostalgic space, right? Which is why so many black people freaked out at Kanye for saying, like, people chose slavery. There is no nostalgic lingering in that. Sp- it's Nostalgia doesn't work the same way because the cultural constructs and the historical moment is so painful and so violent, so wretched, right? That it, it doesn't function in the same vector, so, you know, there is a way in which I think we are seeing simultaneously white nostalgia for these other hyper-white moments in American history mm-hmm. at the same time that you're seeing a huge production of black futurism. I mean, black people don't linger in the past, as the historical right. past, with nostalgia as a racial technology of blackness. Instead, they're the ones who are generating futurist impulses that are moving mm-hmm. cultures forward, whether it's inventive music or dance or, you know, or policy ideas. They're doing the work of imagining a different relationality for the future. I mean, how do you grapple with the past as a black person? Like, obviously, Kanye as a black person is grappling with it by being like, black people had agency like that's he's like trying to believe that they had some kind of agency yeah totally which is because it's difficult to imagine that his people in the past didn't have agency or they were denied it and that's a really difficult thing to swallow kanye's entire persona is about uh embodying the power that white people have because he's uncomfortable with the fact that black people don't have the same kind of agency and he's trying to take that space like as a black man which I have to appreciate mm-hmm. um, I mean his entire but his entire struggle is like about his anxiety with like trying to claim that kind of power so yeah but this is what I'm saying in the same way that white people are inarticulate about their discomfort with being capitalist whores Right, which becomes economic anxiety that's tied to racial hierarchy because of the way that capitalism has harnessed black bodies. So too is Kanye being slightly inarticulate and saying that black people chose to be slaves. He is really trying to describe a relationality that most people don't have the capacity to describe in terms of agency in a political culture where slavery has foreclosed right certain forms of citizenship so he is he is trying to talk about that right he doesn't really mean that all of those slaves actively chose every day to stay a slave in one sense because he's acknowledged right there is part of Kanye that acknowledges all kinds of structures of oppression but on the other hand they didn't rise up and have slave revolts so there is part of that agency that they have some responsibility for on the one hand we see the underground railroad and slaves who who snuck away and you know burnt down the farm and stole stuff and sabotaged and were lazy and stole leisure time and right like they're all all of these ways, like microways and infrapolitics that black folks resisted on the plantation that were also full of agency, 
right? And then you have people who are, tr you know, trafficking black folks out of the South so that they can escape. So uh, it's not that <laughs> Kanye is just reckless with his words sometimes and has a responsibility for using them. But I think that his intent is, just as you said, it is to really articulate a radical black ontology that is not completely foreclosed. Right. I, I do find myself confused by his support for Donald Trump and his, like, sense of brotherhood with Trump and his, and his persona. I don't know exactly how to identify what that is. I mean, I don't know. Kanye says stuff that other black millionaires do, right? It's not like all of those black folks from Oprah to Chris Rock to uh, Jay-Z, they have complicated relationships with white capital because they're the exceptional ones who have become the black entrepreneurs, the talented 10th. So they have a complicated relationship with white power structures. Kanye is at least being transparent about it, right? Even though it's an absurdist sort of transparency. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? There is something that is, I think, quite authentic about that in a way that a lot... You know, how many times have you seen the memes of Oprah and Trump hugging go around the Internet, especially after her Me Too speech at the Golden Globes? So what do we make of that? Right? That is neoliberalism, right? Where mm -hmm. black capital, right, as a newly emergent form of personhood and citizenship and belonging is then absolutely dependent upon the proximity to and haptics, the touching of white success. There is, it's not like, it's not like any of those black folks became wealthy on the backs of black money, right? It's white kids who are buying the hip hop and it's white women who are watching Oprah and it's white folks who are watching the Netflix specials now that Chappelle, right, is not on Comedy Central. That's white money. So there is something I think about, you know, Kanye's outburst that nods towards this um, promiscuous relationship between black art and white capital that I think is why people read him as um, sort of schizophrenic. I think he's pointing to the illogic of capital and how it functions, you know. And he's right. Donald Trump was sort of this doyen, this, you know, fancy man who was the butt of a lot of punchlines in hip-hop before he became president. It was sort of a a casual object of attachment for some hip-hop music. He occupied a different space then with that had some levity, right? But that levity has been evacuated. And so in that TMZ exchange, you know, he gets yelled at for not being responsible because a lot of other black folk have to eat the shit that comes from the policy consequences of white carelessness, especially as it attaches itself to black cool. Mm -hmm. And Kanye himself has expressed a desire to run for president. And so it behooves him to tie his name to someone who, as an outsider, politically fought his way in or bought his way in yeah. <laughs> to the presidency and is a sitting president. And Kanye also has aspirations like that because he aspires to ha acquire any kind of power that he can. 
Yeah, it's just a lie to think that you would have, as a black a black man in America, that kind of power and not have some proximity to white violence, right? I mean, I think it's probably structurally impossible. Mm-hmm. So, for black folks who are outraged at Kanye, on the one hand, I totally get it because his language was sloppy and the Trump stuff is really vulgar. In a racial way, right? Not in a wordplay way, right? Mm-hmm. Not in a verbiage way. But on the other hand, Kanye is attempting to describe the complicated relationships that slavery produced in the United States and the way that that created differentials in political agency that were not total. But if it's not total for black folks under slavery, then it's not total for white folks either, right? Which is where there's potentially progressive ground. It's just unfortunate that Kanye doesn't have the... He can't express that in ways that people can hear it well, you know? So I see why he gets frustrated. I think most of his... His energy is so anxious and frustrated all the time because he has these thoughts... But he is not communicating in a way that people can hear him, which must be tremendously frustrating for him. And also is probably the permanent paradox of being black in America, is having things to say that people can't hear, right? Not expressing them in a way that they want to hear. So in some ways, he is the quintessential (laughs) black American subject, right? It's just interesting that this happens at this moment of the hyperproduction of white nostalgia, and so there is a conversion between this intentional production of white nostalgia as a political techne, as a technology of white capital in this political moment, and then this black articulation of slavery as a kind of choice that I think highlights um, how the past continues to overdetermine the present, quite frankly. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.